Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be entrusted with this gospel, to be stewards of this message of hope. May we use it well, God, and use it to your glory in the way that we serve, in the way that we encourage, the way that we fellowship, the way we sing, the way we open up your word. And Father, may we come before you now as we always do, expectant and eager to once again be spoken to by this by this word of truth that shapes us and molds us and changes us. May your spirit be living and active. Uh, may it speak to us in profound ways this morning. We thank you for all that you do for us. May we give all that we are back to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, special word of gratitude and congratulations again to our graduates. Put your hands together again for those amazing testimonies of seniors and their hard work. It's really neat to see uh, the, the fruit of their labor pay off and to, to really be a part of a church that gets to release people all over the world, all over the country, and to, to think about, while it's so great to have them here with us for a season, to then be excited to see where God is leading them into the future. Uh, put your hands together also for our students that led us in worship this morning. What an awesome thing to see. Uh, we're, we're a church that loves uh, really coming together and seeing what you put or what is put on display in the text, right? That one generation declares his good works to another. And, and so that's multi-directional, right? That, that's all the generations gathering together, reminding each other of what God has done. And so I love that about our church, uh, that we have the opportunity to hear from the generations. And so what a blessing to have them lead us in worship this morning. Uh, so we're going to continue our discussion uh, through this little sub-series that we introduced last week that uh, has us in the book of Genesis. And this is part of a sub-series that's connected to the larger theme that we introduced uh, earlier in the year, which is the theme for renewal, and what it means to live a renewed life or to live as God's renewed people. Uh, but as we go throughout that theme throughout the year, we're going to have these little areas of sub-focus that we kind of hone in and, and have a little particular area of, of emphasis that allows us to consider that renewal from different relationships and different aspects. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what does it mean to have the renewed family, right? What does that look like? And so I'm curious, what comes to mind when you hear the word family? And what do you picture? What, what memory maybe? comes immediately to your thoughts? What, what list of people do you typically think of when you hear the word family? Now, the, the, the idea of family can be used in a lot of different ways, a lot of different contexts, right? We, we talk about being a part of a church family. We talk about having work family, extended family, immediate family, blended family. There are all these different ways that we speak about family and talk about family, which allows us to kind of anticipate whenever somebody says, what do you think of when you hear that word, you'd imagine that we'd all have probably some different answer, right? It, it means different things to different people. Uh, when we think about this series, and in particular where we're going to be headed and the kind of aspect of family that we're going to focus in on for the next several weeks, we're going to go beyond, or really back to the basics. We're going to eliminate kind of the complexities of family and all the different ways that it can evolve and mold itself and really kind of hone in on just the essential building blocks of family. Specifically, what does it mean to be husband and wife or mom and dad? Right, that, that's going to be kind of the areas of emphasis that we look at over the next few weeks. Today, we'll take a look at, in particular, uh, marriage and what it means to be husband and wife and, and the desire for a renewed marriage. Uh, but at the same time, next week, we'll take a look at what it means to be a mom, and then we'll take a look at what it means to be a dad, and then we'll wrap up this series 
towards the end of the month. And, and so really when you even boil it down to those simple definitions, right, husband, wife, mom, dad, even then we have a lot of different understanding of family, a lot of different experiences of what family looks like and what we've encountered that allows us to have very different answers to that question. And part of that's because our society, our context continues to evolve and change, right? Even just the experiences that we have, a couple of statistics that I found interesting in researching for this message that came from Pew Research was just the way that what we experience and what children have experienced through the lens of family has continually changed and evolved in our country. For example, back in the 1960s, I think it was around 73% of children that were born were born into two-parent homes, right? That was the norm, the overwhelming majority. But today, that number is down to 46%, right? So 46%, the majority of children that are born today don't uh, have the opportunity to be born into a home where they are able to have both mom and dad. That has a drastic impact on your understanding of family, even marriage, Right for a variety of different reasons, uh, looks very different than it did 70 years ago. In the 1950s, 80 percent of American households were comprised of married couples. 80 percent. In 2020, the number is 49 percent. Right, and so even our view and our approach to marriage, whether or not it's needed, whether or not it's necessary, different ways for relationships to evolve shows us that even if we uh, simplify it to these little building blocks of family and taking a look at uh, mom and dad and husband and wife, even then our experiences are going to be very different, right? And so I know when I ask the question, what does family look like to you? What do you think of? We have a lot of different answers. And some of our answers would be filled with very positive feelings, but for others of us, it might be a little bit more painful, a little bit more difficult, right? Because we all recognize that for some of us, family has, has been a tremendous blessing, but for others, it's been a source of pain, right? We, we've had broken relationships as much as we've had good relationships. And so we all have different ways to answer that question of what family means to us. But, but even though we have those differences, we have a commonality. We have a common thread that, that we all long for family. Family is something you almost instinctively look for and try to create in your life, right? If you have it and it's really good, then, then you cling to it and then you try to recreate it. And if you don't have it and it was more of an avenue of hardship and difficulty, well, then you try to find it and replace it with friendships or somewhere else. There's something within each of us that longs to be known and to know, right? That longs to be loved and to be fully loved. And we know that usually the best place that that happens is within family, and so there's a lot of ways that people have tried to describe that sort of longing. I came across a couple of quotes that I thought were pretty compelling that helped kind of convey this idea. George A. Moore uh, once said, a man travels the world over in search of what he needs and returns home to find it. I love that, right? It carries that idea that you can leave life with this adventuresome spirit that I'm going to find fulfillment in the pursuit of my dreams and my aspirations and travel the world to find what I need only to discover what I really needed was back at home, right, with the people that I share life with, that know me and that I fully know. Another great quote that I came across, this one, the authorship is unknown, says, having somewhere to go is home, having someone to love is family. Having both is a blessing. 
right? And, and what that quote speaks to is just the gift that family can be, the blessings that family can provide, what it means to really have that sort of relationship and that sort of connectivity. One other quote uh, also that I really, really liked uh, that I think captures it really well, that speaks to this longing. This from uh, an individual by the name of Paul Persall. He says, our most basic instinct is not for survival, but for family. And that makes sense to me. That resonates with me. If you think about the creation account and the creation narrative that says it's not good for man to be alone, that we are all created with an inherent desire towards this knowingness, to be known and to know others, and that we find that in the intimacy of family and how powerful that can be. And that's why we long for it. That's why we seek it out in some capacity or another. And and so I actually uh, recognize that to really convey this, the best way to try to capture the spirit of the benefit of family and what we're really trying to describe is better articulated not through statistics and quotes, but really by word of testimony and story. And I just so happened to come across an article this week that I felt like really captured that fairly well. Uh, It was an article that I was reading uh, for an unrelated reason Uh, But as I read through it, it really captured some of these ideas. It's an article that was written by a lady by the name of Michaela Schifrin. And that name might sound familiar to some of you. She's an Olympic gold medalist. Uh, She won her first gold in downhill skiing in Sochi in 2014. And when she did, she did so as the youngest Olympic gold medalist ever in her event. She was three weeks shy of turning 19. Won another gold four years later and then recently competed in Beijing Didn't do as well in Beijing, but then just a few weeks after the Olympic Games, won the World Cup in her events as well. So if there was ever an individual who has achieved uh, in her particular field and in her career and has seen both successes and failures, it's Michaela. And, And she has truly accomplished all that she can really accomplish. And as she was talking about both those successes and those failures, she was processing some recent tragedies within her family that allowed her to really kind of reflect upon what really brought meaning to those moments, right? Here she is. She's successful in a career doing something that she has loved her whole life, and what really stood out to her was not the accolades, not the gold medals. It wasn't the what, but it was the who she was with, right? She recognized there was something more to life, right? There is one particular quote that, that captures this spirit of it that leads her on her ability to kind of process this. She says, After Beijing, when I turned things around and ended up winning the World Cup, people would say things to me like, Michaela, now that you're in a much better place, and and I never said it out loud, but I would always think, am I? We equate winning with being okay and failure with not being okay. But the truth is, is that I'm neither all right or not all right. It really depends on the day, and it almost has nothing to do with how fast I came down a mountain. What she was realizing as she was beginning to process this and experiencing winning the gold and it wasn't quite as fulfilling as she thought it was and also dealing with the failures and defeats was that what was really bringing her fulfillment in life was who more than what, which is an important thing for us to remind ourselves because Pew Research has also identified that 95 to 97% of Americans would identify that the number one way to find fulfillment in life is to have a career that you love. Right, that we find this fulfillment in what we do more than who we're with. And Michaela was realizing that that wasn't true. And part of the reason she was beginning to realize this is she was processing this tragedy of losing her father. 
And as she began to walk through all those different memories and all those different moments that really enriched them, what gave her meaning and significance and fulfillment was not standing on a podium for the world to see, but the moments in the hotel room with her family afterwards. And she talked about just what a blessing her family was and these memories that she was now cherishing with the absence of her father and her father's passing. And as she draws this article to a close, she, she describes this scene, right? She's, she's reflecting on these memories that she has that make her so appreciative and so grateful for her family, and then kind of just describes some of these memories. And in so doing, I think she gives us a really uh, powerful picture that we can all somewhat connect with in terms of why family is so important. Here's what she says. She's talking about memories of her father. She says, a walk on the beach with my dad when I was five. The way the water was, the way the sun was, the way it all just was. Did it even really happen like that? Does it even matter? These things don't exist on a hard drive. They can't be captured on a screen. And I can't even put them into words no matter how hard I try. They exist somewhere. And I don't know where, but it's not here on earth. They come to you in a dream or in a daydream or even when you're at the top of a mountain. They're somewhere deep in your soul. They come to me in my sleep or when I'm daydreaming or when I'm just lying under a picnic table between runs, closing my eyes and listening to music. They appear from nowhere. I'm at my Nana's and it's Thanksgiving and everyone's there. Everyone's there and we're eating chips and guac and those little shrimps we'd always have at Thanksgiving. And my uncle is making the biggest turkey you've ever seen and I can smell it. Frank Sinatra, of course, is playing on Nana's stereo because Nana controls the stereo and I can hear his voice crackling on the speakers. I can hear all their voices. I can just feel how everything was. The sound of dishes, the sound of uncles playing backgammon, the smell of Nana's pies, the smell of a ginormous turkey, inside jokes, laughter, warmth, love. I loved that quote. And isn't it interesting? Because it's simultaneously completely unrelatable and fully relatable. Right, because none of us know the specifics of what she just referenced. None of us have actually been with her family at Thanksgiving. We don't know those sights, those sounds, those inside jokes. And so from that vantage point, we can't relate to it at all. And yet, for many of us, we know exactly what she's talking about. We can think of our own Thanksgiving traditions, our own inside jokes, and all these other memories with the people in our life where we found more intimately than any other arena what it is to find laughter warmth, and love. That's what family does. Right? The reality is, is that there's only a small group of people that you get to share that relationship with, to share those moments with, and they can be so rich and so beautiful and so meaningful. And yet even Michaela would tell you, as we all would tell you, that the other common thread that we all experience is that as great as they can be, none of them is perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect family. No matter how nostalgic the memory may be, every family needs renewal. And so what does that renewal look like? How do we pursue it? How do we know when it's there? That's the question that we want to wrestle with today. And as we begin to wrestle with it, my hope is that it allows us to once again be reminded that those incredible moments of blessing that family provides where we find that laughter, that warmth, and that love, what it should do for us is not make us love our family ultimately, but a renewed family 
takes all those blessings and those gifts and points us and reminds us of the ultimate love that we have in Christ. And that's what we want to pursue. So grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis 12. All right, we got several different passages we're going to look at today. I actually told the media team, take a break. I'm not going to have you put it up on the screens because I don't have one particular verse or text. We're going to look at several different stories that coincide with Abram and Sarah. We were introduced to Abram and Sarah last week, and uh, we did so through the lens of this idea of devotion and commitment. But now we're going to use Abram and Sarah as really the focal point to ask ourselves the question about what does it look like to have a renewed family? And we'll do that through those simple building blocks that we referred to earlier. In particular, what does it mean to have husband and wife or mom and dad? And as I mentioned today, we'll take a look at this idea of a renewed family by focusing in on the concept of marriage. What does it mean for us to find renewal within our marriage? And we'll use Abram and Sarah as a guide. Now, a couple of things about the conversation of marriage. I think we can all relate that, that no two marriages are the same, right? And so we can all hopefully draw from this from different experiences. I know one of my favorite quotes on marriage is something that Jennifer and I found when we were shopping one time over Christmas in Grapevine. And you know all those little uh, slogans and clever sayings that they put on these little wood frames nowadays? We came across one that says, marriage is just one giant sleepover with your favorite weirdo. And uh, we thought that's such a great definition of at least our marriage. And so uh, this means a lot of different things to different people, obviously. Here's my hope. For those of you that are here today that are not married but want to be, maybe this conversation today helps shape expectations, right? Helps you understand what to really look for. For those of us that are married, right? Maybe it'll hopefully speak to us wherever we are in that relationship, whether it's newlywed or we've been married for quite some time. It can remind us of what that relationship is meant to do. For those of us that are widowed, right? Those of us who are no longer married and have lost a loved one, maybe this allows us to look back with fond memories in terms of what we were actually able to uh, experience and the benefits that it provided us. Or even for those that are not married and, and are not likely to ever end up in marriage, it still can remind us of the benefit of where we find love and ultimate love in Christ. So I hope it speaks to each and every one of us, no matter where we are today, as we take a look at this story, especially through the lens of Abram and Sarah. So when you look at Genesis 12, in this particular story, this family, what we saw last week is we really don't know anything about their marriage, right? Genesis 11 kind of sets the stage for this incredible covenant that God establishes with Abram at the beginning beginning of Genesis 12, and all it really does is, is give us some nuances of who's who and where are they headed, right? We, we're introduced to Abram's father. We're introduced to this, this idea of their trajectory of moving out of the land of the Chaldeans and the land of Ur, then to Haran, and then moving on a little bit later. And in that description, you just get a simple reference that Abram has married Sarah. That's all you get, right? And then you get this really monumental moment in the beginning of Genesis 12, where you see this covenant established with Abram, and it seems very significant and meaningful, as we all know it is, as it sets the tone for, for really the rest of Scripture in so many different levels. And that's all we have. And then immediately after this monumental moment where you see that God has called Abram to move to a new place, he's taking his wife Sarah, they go to Canaan, now all of a sudden, the very next story that is related to Abram's journey is about his marriage. And we get an insight to their marriage. And so let's take a look at what we see in this first little episode in Genesis 12. If you want to follow along either on your device or in your scriptures, we're going to be starting in verse 10. 
It says, now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you're my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I might take her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders, uh, gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. All right, so that's episode one that we'll take a look at today. Now, I would never claim to be a marriage expert. I am far from an expert in marriage. But I will tell you that in my almost 18 years of marriage, I've learned enough to tell you that that walk home from Egypt did not go well for Abram that day. Right, that was not a good move on his part. And he kind of walked right into it the way a lot of husbands walk into it. Honey, you're so pretty, and, and I love that you're pretty, but I'm kind of worried, right? He gives her the compliment, and then he makes this terrible mistake. And, and it's an awful mistake, and it's one that you can obviously somewhat make light of. And, and part of it's because it seems so foreign to us. It's definitely not a cultural practice that you would anticipate in our context today. And even though it's a little bit more normal then, let's not gloss over the significance of what Abram did. Essentially what he did is he treated his wife as property, right? He, he traded her in for goods and to spare his own life. He denied their relationship. He, he refused to be known as her husband and he put her at risk, right? It's, it's a really appalling move if you really think about it. And this is the first thing that we're told about Abram and specifically his marriage. And it gives us a pretty strong insight right out of the gate. This marriage is somewhat unhealthy and dysfunctional. Right? This is a pretty significant mistake, which then leads you to ask yourself, why is this here? Like, why are we reading this about Abram and Sarah? This is not flattering towards them or towards their marriage. What does this mean? What is it teaching us about him or about God, about this story? And there's a lot of things that we can draw from that. One of the things that's really being established here is that it's introducing us to a theme that is consistent with Abram and Sarah's story, which is namely that here's this incredible covenant that has been established with them, right? This idea that God is going to make them into a great nation. He's going to bless them and all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through them. And as soon as you see this incredible covenant, we're going to discover that time and time again, that promise and that covenant is going to be put under threat, right? Like it's going to be jeopardized more often than not by their own decisions, right? That, that think about what is threatening that promise here. Abram could lose his life. Sarah could lose her life. They could be separated for the rest of their lives. She could become the mother to a, another man's children, right? There are all these different things that begin to compromise this promise, and, and it was because of their own mistakes. It was because of their own failures and their own doing. 
right? And so you see that the threat of God's promise or the, the promises of God are being put in jeopardy and, and are being threatened here by these certain decisions. And yet what we see is that in spite of all those things, God remains faithful. What's so appalling about this is that when you're introduced to Abram at the beginning of the chapter, he comes across as this heroic figure that God has chosen and that is going to be the one that is the father of all these different nations. His name is going to be great. And then all of a sudden, with the very next chapter of this story, all of a sudden what we see is that this hero we've been introduced to is acting in a very unheroic way. And what we're discovering in the process is that he was never the hero to begin with. Right? God is the hero. And that even though humans will falter, even though humans will fail and they will struggle, God's word will remain true. That God is going to be remain faithful. That God is going to see that his promises are fulfilled. That God is the one that rescues Sarah, not Abram. Right? God is the hero of this story. And he is going to secure his promises no matter what human failing may emerge. Right? And so that's the first thing that we see is kind of an, an evidence of dysfunction within this marriage. And Abram was the primary culprit in this particular occasion. But as we will soon discover... Sarah has some of her flaws as well. You can flip on over to Genesis chapter 16. Chapters 13, 14, and 15 don't really speak much to their marriage at all. But chapter 16, we get the next episode that reveals a little bit about their marriage. Follow along with me at chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. And so after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarah said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarah mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. Another pretty appalling moment here that you can see in the uh, portrayal of their marriage. And again, you, you think about it, and you think about how this unfolds and the way that it, it develops and how really shocking it must have been to Abram. In some ways, I can, can kind of imagine Abram sitting there reading his morning newspaper, drinking his cup of coffee, and all of a sudden Sarah walks in and is like, you know, we still don't have children. I'm going to give you my slave woman, Hagar. And I can see him like looking up from the paper thinking, is this a trick question? Like, I don't know how to respond to that. Every husband has been there, right, at some point or another. Like, I don't know what to say in this moment. Is she serious? Is she not? Is she testing me? Is she not? You can relate to like the conflict and the struggle, but he immediately agrees to it. And because he agrees to this plan, everything blows up in their faces, right? It, it becomes catastrophic to the point that you see two different words used here. Well, the same word used two different times that draws from the root to curse, right? This word despise, it comes from the same root of to curse. And you can recognize that because of this plan, because they both went along with it, now their marriage, their family, their relationships feel the weight of, of being despised in this, this curse that has befallen upon them. Right? In fact, there's a little bit of symmetry here with what you see even in the garden with Adam and Eve. 
right? Eve develops a plan, Adam goes along with it in a major fallout. Similar here, Sarah comes up with a plan, Abram goes along with it, similar fallout, right? It's, it's a very catastrophic development. And so you begin to ask yourself, okay, well, what is contributing to this? How did this develop? How did this progress itself to, to become such a difficult situation for Abram and Sarah? And here's what jumped out at me. The first thing you see is that Abram has resolved that the Lord is keeping me from having children. Now, that's a really interesting statement because God is the one who has actually promised them children. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to make you into a great nation. But Sarah has arrived at a place where she does not believe that to be true. In fact, she believes God is the main reason she's not having children. And so there is a completely different view and understanding of God and his plan for their life. And she's resolved that he's the source for it all. He's the reason it hasn't happened. Now, before we put any sort of harsh judgment on Sarah, think about what she's endured. Think about why she's arrived to that conclusion. Right? There's a simple reference in this story that tells us that it was after they'd been living in Canaan for 10 years that Abram took Hagar as his wife. 10 years. Keep in mind the, the timeline here, the chronology of this, but some of what we discussed last week, right? So Abram and Sarah are married when they're living in the land of Ur, the Chaldeans. And according to Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is reflecting upon their story, he says it was when they were there living in the land of Ur that God offered this promise to make them into a great nation. So whatever time, we don't know what it is definitively, but whatever time they spent in the land of Ur as a married couple, they were waiting and then they moved to Haran, right? Terah, Abram's father, took them out of the land of the Chaldeans. They settled in Haran. And we don't know how long they were in Haran, but that's where they lived for quite some time until Terah died. And so their entire time in Haran, they were waiting. And then they finally get to Canaan, and they wait another 10 years. So she's been waiting and waiting and waiting. Don't you know she probably got to a point where she's like, did, did God even really speak to him? Did he hear it right? Did he make it up? And it's, it's more than just the duration of the wait. Right? I know there, there are some of us in this room that understand this very specific pain of desiring a family and it not happening. And I can speak from experience that when you are constantly longing for that and asking for that only to be disappointed over and over and over again, you get mad at God. Because you think to yourself, I know you could do this, and you're not. And that's where she's arrived. She puts her blame on God because of all of this waiting and all of this pain. She no longer believes that that promise is going to be fulfilled. And so what does she do? She tries to take control. Right? She deviates from God's plan by saying, I'm going to take control of this. I'm going to find a way for us to have a family one way or another. She devises a plan. And it's a reminder that when we try to take things out of God's hand and put them into our own, it very rarely works out well. And so things begin to unfold in a very negative way, right? Relationships fall through, the marriage weakens, all these different things begin to transpire. And then notice what she says. She looks to Abram and she says, you're responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. It's a really remarkable statement, right? This was her plan, he went along with it, and then all of a sudden it didn't go the way that she thought it would, and so who does she blame? She blames Abram. 
And it's another good indicator of what we often find in marriages that are in desperate need of renewal. Right, at some point, a spouse within that relationship wakes up and realizes life is not what I thought it would be. It's not what I signed up for. And so I'm gonna try to take control of this and when it still doesn't work out, who do I blame? I blame my spouse. You're responsible for the wrong and the suffering that I'm experiencing. And that's what begins to weaken our marriages is that when we begin to deviate from God's plan, we turn against each other and we blame one another for the pain and the suffering that we're experiencing. Those are the marriages that are in desperate need of renewal. I guess part of what I'm trying to to say by using Abram and Sarah as an example is a little bit of a reminder that, that all marriages need renewal. There is no perfect marriage, even Abram and Sarah. In these just two introductory episodes, we see how dysfunctional their marriage really was, right? We see a terrible mistake on Abram's side, a mistake on Sarah's side. And while we've looked at some of the details, let's try to get underneath them. What was really driving those poor decisions that weakened their marriages? And there's probably a lot of different things we could point to, a lot of different things we could consider. Let me offer two for us this morning. I think what was going underneath their hearts throughout the course of these particular events were fear and doubt. See, fear a little bit more clearly on the side of Abram, though both of these feelings are intricately connected. Right? Abram arrives at a place where he's fearful of what can happen to him, fearful of what it might cost him. Right? If he had been fully confident in God's plan and in God's promises and this assurance that he was going to be the father of many nations, he could have walked into Egypt unafraid, knowing that they couldn't take his life because God's word had been assured to him, knowing that they couldn't take his wife because of God's word that had been promised to him. He could have gone in there unafraid, but instead he went in fearful. Now, if they see your beauty, cost me my life. So let's create a lie. Let's disguise this. And in that fear, he lost sight of God's promises, and it weakened their marriage. Right? For Sarah, it was doubt. Right? For her, she had arrived at a place because of all the waiting, because of all the pain, because of all the frustration, where she no longer believed that whatever this promise was was actually going to be fulfilled. She didn't trust it anymore. She didn't think it was actually going to happen. And so what did she do? She tried to seize it for herself. How long does it take for you to try to take things out of God's hand and put them into your own? How often do we do that when we're encountering doubt. God's not going to do this, so I need to take control on my own. We rarely say that, but it's how we live. It's how we function. So it was fear and doubt that were creating these struggles within their marriage. Let me ask you a question. When you think about your marriages and the struggles that you experience, the tension, the conflict, the pain, Those moments and those seasons where you begin to understand your need for renewal. How many times what's driving those conflicts, what's driving that struggle and that pain is fear and doubt. Right? You're you're fearful of what what you might lose, fearful of of what it might cost you to, to change things at work, to change things with other relationships, to change your dreams, change your ambitions. You're fearful of losing all that and so it costs your marriage in the process. Or doubt. Doubt that there's any plan, 
doubt for what God's going to do, a lack of, of understanding of where you're headed, a lack of understanding of what the purpose is, and so all of a sudden, because of all those frustrations and life isn't what you think it was gonna be, the natural result is to turn and blame one another. So our marriages are frequently weakened by fear and doubt. And so if that's you, take heart, you're not alone. There's no perfect marriage. But at the same time, use those as indicators and reminders to say, okay, we need renewal. We need to be renewed in our marriage, renewed in our love for one another. And so how do you pursue that renewal? A couple of things that I would offer this morning, one specific one that we'll drive from Abram and Sarah's story here in just a second. But as I was thinking through this, uh, another article that I came across that offered some practical advice that I thought would be worth sharing this morning comes from an article that was written by an individual by the name of Virginia Pelly. And she writes this article after an interview with a Dr. John Dufresne. Not Andy Dufresne, but Dr. John Dufresne. Some of you got it. John Dufresne, who's a PhD uh, a professor at the University of Nebraska, professor emeritus for family studies. And he's written 20 different books, a lot of different research about families, and he offers a lot of practical advice of what makes a strong and healthy marriage. And, and so he offers this article and from the premise of society that we live in is really set up to give businesses success and an economy success. Nothing in our society is really created to give marriages success. And so we have to figure it out on our own. We have to fight for it. And so here are some guidelines and some, some tips. And so I, I thought some of them were really helpful, but there's one in particular I'll, I'll emphasize in a second. But some of the things you would expect, uh, being good friends, enjoy spending time with one another, right? That part of what we need to do to help create that renewal within our marriages is to strengthen the friendship. Because when you're a friend, you rarely do poor things to another friend. Right, so it's cultivating friendship. It's working as a team. He talked about the value of, of, of thinking like a team. A lot of times what will happen in our marriages is we'll think independently and we'll operate in silos even within our marriages. And in worst case scenarios, we're actually working against one another. But healthy marriages think as a team. He talked about the importance of accentuating the positive, being optimistic, right? creating a spirit of gratitude, being thankful for the things that you have and not just the things that you don't have and how meaningful that can be for a healthy relationship. He talked about the ability to resolve conflict and the importance of managing stress, all these things that you would anticipate are a natural part of healthy conflict resolution. But here is the one that really stood out to me and is a list of things that, that make for healthy, strong marriages. He says they have a shared mission, shared worldview, right? shared values, but in particular, a shared mission, a shared purpose. And that resonated with me, and that to me serves as a bridge to, to respond to this question of how does a marriage find renewal out of just the practical advice that you might find from a professor at Nebraska and back into the scriptures, right? What is it that we need to once again uh, build our lives upon and build our marriages upon, but the shared understanding of vision and mission that only comes from the gospel, Right? That's what Abram and Sarah had forgotten, that God had a purpose and a meaning for them, and that's what they needed to cling to. And that's what God reminds them of in Genesis 17. Let, let me look at these few verses here in verse, uh, chapter 17. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Almost as if God is saying, you haven't been your walk has not been faithful. It has not been blameless, but I'm still here. 
I am the Lord Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell, down, fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants. A little bit later in this exchange, God also says to Abram, as for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarah. Your name, her, her name will now be Sarah with an H. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations and kings of peoples will come before her. A little bit later, he says, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. So what I love about this declaration in Genesis 17 is that he reminds Abram and Sarah of their shared mission, right? What he's saying to them and what I think is so encouraging to each and every one of us is that even in our failures, even in our imperfections, be it individually or be it in our marriages, God oftentimes visits us and reminds us, I haven't forgotten you. I'm still the hero of the story. My word will be faithful. My word will be true. I will walk with you in all of these struggles and all of this doubt and all of this fear. I'm gonna remind you of what I'm gonna do for you. And he gives them this call once again to the shared mission, the shared purpose. And what we discover is that where we begin a renewed marriage, this is my main point, a renewed marriage begins with trust in God's plan. It has to start there. More than anywhere else, this understanding that what brought you together in your marriage was not a great date. It wasn't chemistry. It wasn't shared interests. It wasn't financial security or common ideas. What brought you together was a creator, an almighty God who has given you a gospel to steward and has enriched you with the blessing of family so that you can have a greater understanding of his love. That's why he brought you together. Because Christ loves you, loves the church, like a husband loves his wife and gave himself up for her. So with all those imperfections that you experience in your marriage, all those shortcomings where you have to come and ask for forgiveness and extend forgiveness and overcome fear and overcome doubt is a gateway for you to be reminded of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the hope that you have in Jesus. The gospel is what brings you together, not anything else. And when you build your marriage and your life upon that, you will infuse trust into your relationship, not just a trust with one another, but a trust in where God is leading you together, and that's where renewal begins. Now, it takes more than that, right? And there's a lot of effort that coincides with it. But if I were to offer one word of encouragement for any of us today, it's to invest and infuse that sort of trust and that sort of devotion into our families, into our marriages, into our understanding of what it means to be husband or wife. And the more we can do that, the more we will be reminded of this incredible love that we have in Christ but the reason he gives us such beautiful moments of intimacy in family 
is to stir our hearts and awaken our hearts of what it means to really love and be loved. And as our hearts are stirred accordingly, what really enriches us is not the opportunity to look upon this family unit, whatever it looks like, and to see the blessing that it provides and begin to love it ultimately, but to use that as an opportunity to see that all of its blessings, all of its privileges, all of its grace, all of its mercy points us back to his ultimate love. A renewed marriage is the building block for a renewed family that allows us to see that fear and doubt can be overcome with the hope of the gospel. Not because we have each other, but because we have Christ. May that be the heartbeat of every single one of our families. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we're so grateful that you love us. Even in the midst of our imperfections, even in the midst of our mistakes. God, we recognize that for many of us, we go through life overwhelmed with fear and with doubt and it impacts so many of our relationships, especially our families, especially our marriages. And God, we confess those imperfections to you this morning, and we ask that rather than fear and doubt, we would build our lives upon a trust in this gospel that calls us together. God, for all the incredible moments that we get to experience within our homes and all the things that allow us to experience love in the context of family, may it Stir us in such a way that allows us to better understand who you are and your love for us. We thank you, Father, for such a rich and amazing love. May we offer it to one another as we seek to offer it to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. We're going to enter into a time of response this morning. Uh, This is a great opportunity to, again, come before the Lord. And if that means coming down here to this altar and praying, maybe with your spouse, Uh, Maybe you don't need to come down to the altar, but maybe that's exactly what you do is turn to your spouse and pray with them for a little bit today or pray for people that you know are going through certain uh, challenges within their marriages. Whatever that looks like, this is a time to respond. We're going to have deacons come forward during this time of response to also be available to pray with you and to pray for you. Uh, But whatever it is that the Spirit prompts you to do, respond obediently and faithfully so that God can do a work on each and every one of us. Let's stand together and let's sing and respond for this gospel.
Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that what we find is our saving grace is not found in a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter, but in a savior named Jesus. And he is ours forevermore. Nothing that this world can throw at us can change that reality. And so may we leave here today joyful and confident and expectant. Help our souls rejoice because we know that fear is gone and hope is sure because Christ is ours forevermore. We love you, Father. Strengthen us today and tomorrow and for all the days of our lives, Father. We entrust all this to you and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.